3: But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish protocol or the Northern Irish protocol
4: fully implemented.
3: I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe
2: Editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungown, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin.
3: And in Belfast, this week hot off the press, the DUP has a new leader. By a narrow margin, Edwin Putz defeated Geoffrey Donaldson to take over the mantle from Arlene Foster. We'll hear from RTE's northern editor Vincent Kearney on what this means for Northern Ireland and for the Northern
0: Ireland Protocol, which is still the target of trenchant opposition from unionists and the subject of ever deeper technical talks between the EU and UK officials in the week that Brexit Minister David Frost described the protocol as possibly not sustainable We'll assess what the next few months hold. And as Taoiseach Mihol Martin and
2: Boris Johnson meet in checkers, what are the chances of a reset in Anglo-Irish relations, given the bruising experience of the Brexit years and this week's inquest into the Bally Murphy killings in 1971? We'll also look at the prospect of another Scottish independence referendum and what that might mean for Scotland's European destiny. But first, let's go to that fresh-off-the-presses news and the newly-minted leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, Edwin Poots, Let's hear his acceptance speech first, or at least some of it, and then we'll hear from our Northern editor, Vincent Kearney.
5: So there's much to do, there's much to be done, and I stand here today very proud to be taking up the mantle as leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, and that brings with it a responsibility to all of unionism. I want to say this uh, very clearly. I will be a leader in unionism who will be reaching out to other leaders in unionism I want to see Unionism working together. The Northern Ireland Protocol has proven to be a massive challenge for us. And if we are to uh, fight this, to ensure that everybody in Northern Ireland is not worse off as a consequence of the Protocol, then it's for us to do that together. And I want to ensure that that is the case, that we don't have the Unionist bickering that we've had in the past, and I will encourage all Unionists to work with me to deliver an end which ensures we set the foundations in this 2021 for another 100 years of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. Thank you.
2: So Vincent, how are you? I'm good. Edwin Poots won by two votes.
4: So who is Edwin Poots? a complicated figure uh, from outside certainly many would view him as being very extreme and quite uh, right wing he's been in the, the DUP all of his political career he brought into the DUP by Ian Paisley um, he's very close friends with um, Ian Paisley Jr uh, that's Dr Paisley's son uh, they've been friends uh, since they were young boys so uh, from a very early age he was identified as someone who, who had um, a political career ahead of him uh, in terms of who he is well on the one hand And he's viewed as very, very right wing in terms of his traditional, very conservative um, religious views. He's a creationist. So he believes the the earth is only 6,000 years old. And uh, so therefore believes, for example, that dinosaurs didn't exist and didn't walk the earth. So many critics uh, use that uh, as a stick to beat him Uh, on conservative issues. He's also very strongly anti-abortion. Back in 2011, during his time as health minister, he kept a, a ban on, on gay men donating blood uh, despite the fact that the, the ban had been lifted in england scotland and Wales. now he said he was doing it on the grounds of public safety uh, but that ban had to eventually be lifted after a court in belfast said that the ban was simply irrational uh, he's previously previously also argued very strongly against lgbt couples being allowed to adopt children uh, so uh, on religious things very very traditional and very conservative but interestingly, colin those who have dealt with them Politically, say he's also a very practical person, not afraid to make a deal. Uh, Practical and pragmatic, that includes those who have dealt with him at Stormont and officials who have dealt with him within the Irish government. Yeah, I've heard that from
2: diplomats here that, you know, they they didn't raise too many eyebrows uh, when they heard he was a candidate. They said, you know, he's he's a can do type of person.
4: Absolutely. I mean, I, it was put to me last week that he's a man who, if he wants to, can very quickly start a row over very little, but can also do a deal that perhaps initially you thought wasn't possible. Um, so he is pragmatic. An example of that I goes back, again, to his, his time as health minister, uh, gelvin Hospital in Derry. There's there long been talk of a cancer, a regional cancer unit being based at Alt McGillivin that wouldn't just treat uh, people in the northwest of Northern Ireland but would also be a centre that could be used by those in Letterkenny and County Donegal. And lots of food dragging over a period of years. Edwin Poots came in as health minister and very quickly made that happen. And I, I spoke to, recently to a nationalist politician who at the time expressed surprise to Edmund and said, you, you moved in this very quickly, despite the fact that this is a health centre that will also treat patients from across the border. And he said Edmund's response was simply, cancer is cancer. It impacts on everyone the same. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your religion is. This makes sense. This is about health not politics so that person was quite taken aback but again that, that that's a demonstration of a real pragmatic strain and how uh, ironic come that in January this year Edwin puts himself revealed he'd been diagnosed with cancer he had to step down for a while uh, while he was treated and is now back and t- today thank God he said for the the help, giving him the health to now become DUP leader
2: and what did he say during the leadership race, Vincent that might give us an indication of his approach to things because one of the things he addressed uh, in in his speech when he accepted was he wanted to end unionist bickering and two maybe unifying forces under which unionism could be united might be the Northern Ireland Protocol on any potential border pole.
4: Uh, that's right. Clearly signalling that he wants to reach out to the Ulster Unionist Party, perhaps even also to the leader of the traditional unionist voice, uh, Jim Allister, a one-time DEP member and now one of his fiercest opponents. But but Jim Allister has already just been on BBC Radio a short time ago saying that, well, Evan Putz has been a protocol implementer during his time as Agriculture Minister. So he says he has to go a long way to prove his credentials as someone who now wants to get rid of the protocol. So already one of those voices within unionism is, expressing some scepticism. Um, but interestingly as well, Evan Putz also made it clear throughout that he wants to remain as agriculture minister and not become first minister. Now, many people outside the D P found that a very bizarre situation and, and, and still do, but a party internally, that went down quite well because Evan Put says he wants to concentrate on internal party reform. Uh, he wants to modernise the party and is quite happy for someone else to be first minister. And, and I'm told that within the party, that actually went down well quite well whereas outside the party many are still scratching their heads as to why someone would want to be DUP leader but not also be First Minister
2: Right well he's he's opposed to the protocol but what's he going to do about the protocol because we did hear in recent days that uh, people in the DUP close to Geoffrey Donaldson had briefed that he would effectively blow the protocol out of the water if he was elected DUP leader or he would encourage others to, to disrupt it is that accurate I suppose first of all and secondly what has Edwin Poots been saying about it
4: Well, that's certainly what Geoffrey Donaldson was saying. That's what they were briefing, that he would take a, a tougher stance on the protocol than Edwin Pooch. Edwin Pooch today, he didn't say, you know, we will smash the protocol. He didn't say the protocol must go. He said we must unite and do all we can to make sure people in the Northern Ireland do not continue to suffer and lose out as a result of the protocol. Now, does that possibly suggest, you know, someone who thinks that you might be able to mitigate the protocol rather than get rid of the protocol? Because the reality come is that, you know, no one else other than some within the DUP is entertaining the notion that the protocol can go. There is no alternative on the table. Um, that's from the Irish government the British government and the other European member states are all saying, listen folks the protocol is here to stay let's work with you and let's reduce the obstacles, let re- let's reduce the impact um, so maybe everyone puts at the very start of his leadership realises that there's a danger in promising what you can't deliver so he has to be careful not to say we will get rid of the protocol and smash the protocol because if that then doesn't happen, that's a major failure for him. Uh, now as agricultural Minister here, he did order his officials to stop building new permanent checkpoints at ports in Belfast and Larne, and then was forced to to restart that work by the courts. Now some critics suggested that, that, that was a bit of grandstanding. They said that Edwin Putsch knew that if he stopped the work that he would be forced to restart it legally. So perhaps that gives an indication as to what he might do in terms of the protocol. He might push the envelope a bit. Uh, he might sometimes overstep the mark, but he'll know that legally speaking, what the British government, Irish government, and others have signed up to um, is the law, and they'll have to act within that law. But he will come need some kind of a win. You know, at some point in the next few weeks or few months, he will need Something to show supporters the look, the protocol. It might still be there, but it's not having the kind of impact it was having. And, and he could then package that and sell that as some kind of victory. Finally, then Vincent,
2: what could we expect from Edwin Poots? You said at the beginning he's a practical, a deal-making type of guy. What could the his partners in government Sinn Féin and the Irish government
4: here expect from him? Well. It'll be interesting what happens with, with his, his reaching out to other unionist parties. Uh, does he want to create a, a, a sort of a pan-unionist front, as been as referred to? Uh, and that means that could make relations with other parties uh, more difficult. I think certainly initially he will take a very hard line. Um, he'll want to set... There was criticism before of Arlene Foster. Some of our critics say it was rollover unionism, over DUP. They kept changing tack and changing policy. So I think he'll want to be very hard line because the bottom line column is that this election today is the start of the DUP getting ready for the next election in May of next year. So he will want to make himself appear as a very strong leader and if that means antagonising maybe annoying Sinn Féin, I don't think he's a man he'll be afraid to do that. Right, I suppose it would be wrong to neglect his deputy. Who is she? Paula Bradley MLA in North Belfast viewed as socially much more liberal and it was a bit of a surprise ticket um, and that clearly helped him win votes I and mean, she said just a short time ago that she will be a friend of the leader at times a critical friend of the leader and that's it that that's interesting i think some within the party were perhaps were alarmed at edwin sort of you know evan puts his right wing very traditional conservative uh religious views perhaps were um, were reassured by the deputy leader someone as i say he's viewed as um, more liberal and less socially conservative and, and that i think almost certainly helped him she may be tasked
2: with reaching out to uup and alliance voters whilst he might be tasked with reaching out to a traditional unionist voice might there be a divvy up electorally
4: along those lines there could be the problem could be perhaps how many voices you have reaching out the deputy leader could be reaching out to one constituency, edmund poots will be reaching out and then you'll have a first minister reaching out so you'll have a third person right. um so uh, you'll have many different voices uh, you know and perhaps conflicting messages. Certainly, I think there is an awareness within the party that last time around in the election, they lost votes, they hemorrhaged votes very badly to the centre ground, to the Alliance Party, rather than to the right wing. So they know that moving forward, that election next May is all about who's the largest party. The DUP last time around only won that contest with Sinn Féin by one single seat. It would be a travesty for Edwin Poots if in the next election Sinn Féin emerged as the largest party. And in order to prevent that happening, he's going to have to reach out well beyond that conservative right-wing base within the DUP. He needs to tap into that sort of more uh, socially liberal uh, unionist base as well to younger voters. Uh, the deputy leader might help him do that, uh, but I think some within the DUP w- are, are quite concerned that the coup continue to hemorrhage votes to the centre ground, and if they do so, that means Sinn Féin's chances of emerging as the largest party for the very first time in, in, in the history of Stormont in Northern Ireland's centenary year will be greatly enhanced, and that would be very damaging for Edwin Poots. Vincent, that's deadly. Thanks
2: a million. So, Sean, relations with Edwin Poots are now the concern of Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Taoiseach Michal Martin. You were up outside Chequers today having a sausage roll as you waited for them outside in the blustery wind. What was it like up there and what were they meeting about?
0: Well, let's get the important business out of the way. First, there was no sausage roll. Yes, they were available from the nearby farm shop, but sadly, uh, all the action was happening during our lunchtime bulletins, which, of course, means for journalists, you don't get a lunchtime. So no sausage rolls for me. What were the talks about? Well, they were intended to be uh, a reset or a reestablisher of Anglo-Irish relations because they've been interrupted by two things one is the COVID pandemic it's just been really difficult if not impossible for politicians to meet face to face and as we know it's uh, politics is the ultimate people business and there are times when you just have to be in the room with somebody in order to reach that all-important political agreement and there hasn't been a meeting between the Taoiseach and the British Prime Minister since last August uh, which is quite a long time in the normal or what has come to be the normal course of events uh, for meetings between these two office holders. Uh, If you recall, it wasn't always that way. It took 50 years after independence for a British Prime Minister to pay a first visit to Dublin. Since then, they've had a lot more meetings and that's because uh, of the European Union. And in fact, normal business over the past few years has been that there would be four meetings a year between the British and Irish Prime Ministers because there'd be four European councils, at least in an average year, where they would get face time together, whether it be for a few minutes in a corridor or a bit longer in a sit-down meeting uh, arranged in the mission rooms uh, of either of the delegations uh, in the uh, Justice Lipsius building in Brussels, which Tony will no doubt tell you all about. But of course, since Brexit, that opportunity for regular contact uh, hasn't existed and between Brexit ending those regular four time a year plus meetings and COVID putting paid to any other plans they just haven't been together and in that period uh, things have started to slip and go awry and we've seen one or two unilateral actions on the British side particularly around the uh, protocol but also around this issue of uh, the legacy issues of how you deal with uh, alleged crimes that happened during the troubles in Northern Ireland and that has been adding to that volatile mix that has resulted I, I guess you could say in Edwin Poots becoming the leader of the DUP. So the two leaders had a lot of things to talk about and not that much time but in, I guess in the uh, busy world of uh, heads of government uh, a two and a half hour meeting uh, in a lunch hour it was uh Fairly lengthy enough meeting to trot over the main issues and try and re establish that relationship, and also going forward, try and set up a kind of a regular mechanism. The Taoiseach is very keen on this, and I think Boris Johnson would rather like some kind of a regular mechanism uh, whereby he gets to meet the Taoiseach and other ministers get to meet uh, their Irish counterparts because they realise that there are a lot of issues that do need sorting out, uh, most of them bread and butter things. Uh, but also Northern Ireland, a particular relationship that really does need careful management.
2: Right. They didn't have sausage rolls either, Sean, over or that particular
0: uh, lunch hour that you're talking about. They had turbot at lunchtime, uh, garnished with the chorizo sauce, with some panna cotta for afters, and uh, I gather uh, a rather nice sounding goat's cheese and beetroot salad to begin with. Excellent. And you caught up with the Taoiseach afterwards. I did. And the Prime Minister, of course, having to head on, but he was going off to do the televised briefing. Uh, on COVID back in London. So yes, a working lunch with the emphasis very much on work. Yeah, the Taoiseach, we did speak and he took us through the main issues. Um, Some of them were very much Northern Ireland focused, like the legacy issues, but others were uh, Brexit focused because the Northern Ireland protocol is a a huge and ongoing issue. And uh, really, they did need to to have some talks on it. The British have been saying quite openly in the, the House of Commons, it would be good to talk to the Irish on this. So yeah, we asked the Taoiseach what he was talking
1: about on that and here's what he had to say. Obviously we discussed Northern Ireland the necessity to protect the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, we agreed that we continue to exchange perspectives on all of those issues, particularly in the context of uh, of both the, the protocol and obviously the, um, the, the, the uh, issue around legacy and uh, that we would exchange perspectives on that. One has to work on an inclusive basis involving all of the parties uh, collectively um, on all of these issues. The
0: other issue that's causing difficulty is the uh, implementation of the Northern Ireland protocol, particularly uh, the SPS checks on food imports coming into Northern Ireland. Uh, how much detail did you us
1: on that? We had a considerable discussion and exploration of the issues all around that, but of course fundamentally it's a European Union-United Kingdom discussion um, and negotiation. We're all mindful of its impact. Um, on Northern Ireland um, and uh, the, the the importance uh, of, of of dealing with the issue uh, in an uncontentious way and 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 working to see can. Can, can, can these issues be resolved? It is our view that these issues can be resolved in the processes that have been laid down by the Withdrawal Agreement in the context of the Joint Committee. Uh, and we do know that uh, Mara Stefkovic, uh on the EU side and David Trust you know, do get on well together, uh, have the capacity to work well together, and if there's a collective will on all sides, that we can, we can, can, we can resolve some of these issues. Um, and uh, there was considerable discussion around all of that.
0: Most of those issues revolve around food imports and veterinary checks. the idea of aligning uh, somehow British and home standards, having a, a deal like Switzerland has, was that a topic of
1: discussion? Well, as I say, we ex- we explored it with, with breadth and, and in some detail. But again, it's primarily an EU-UK negotiation uh, and discussion. Um, but uh, you know, it was useful to hear the UK's concerns uh, on it um, from their wider perspective uh, in, in the post-Brexit world. Uh, But also I think from our perspective it's very clear the European Union wants to be constructive here and wants to engage in a constructive process with the United Kingdom on this and we articulated that point very clearly.
0: There's a meeting of the British-Irish Intergovernmental Council coming up next month. Should we see this uh, meeting between you
5: and the Prime Minister as uh, part of the
1: preparations for that? Well, I think it's, it, it's a meeting in its own right but, but, but between uh, the, the Prime Minister and I. And obviously will feed into forward exchanges between our government ministers, uh, but also our officials. But we've both agreed we'll meet again before the summer um, to follow through on some of the issues today, particularly the British-Irish dimension in terms of the post-Brexit relationships and how they might be structured and the kind of issues we can get uh, agreement on in terms of advancing uh, and uh, so uh, uh, we agreed today that we would meet again um, prior to the summer recess hopefully uh, and uh, to, to, to put meat on the bone of some of the issues that we discussed today in the context of the British Irish relationship.
0: Uh, final question for you. Prior to uh, recent times you would have had uh, encounters with the British Prime Minister at EU councils uh, in Brussels at least four times a year. Yeah. Nowadays, of course, not just because of COVID, it's more difficult to arrange any kind of meetings with them. Are you hoping that there was some kind of semi-formal or formal uh, relationship in the future where you'd have more regular
1: meetings? That's the whole idea of this this British-Irish relationship post-Brexit that we've been discussing. Uh, You know, I'm in regular contact with the British Prime Minister, but I think it is important in the post-Brexit situation that we would have structures and agreements around ministerial engagements, Official engagements, which are were happening quite regularly, um, and uh, so, for example, on COVID, just for the agreement that our our people in the scientific world and medical world will continue to engage. Uh, we had a good discussion today on COVID as well, of course, because of <clears throat> developments, and you learn of twists and turns in COVID all of the time, and. One is occurring now within the, in, in the UK, for example, which can kind have of implications for us. So, um, yes, in short, the answer is to create uh, you know, relatively loose structures, but structures nonetheless that would facilitate the type of engagement that was commonplace when we were both members of the European Union to try and replicate that in a post-Brexit um, uh, situation.
2: So that was Michael Martin talking about his talks with uh, Boris Johnson, Sean, and it was very much with Boris Johnson, despite maybe an attempt to extend the invite list, were they?
0: Well, yeah, they were on their own, but they also had uh, officials with them and that's fine. You'd expect prime ministers to have their, their key officials, including the, the Secretary General of the uh, Irish government. Uh, they were all in the room. Uh, together. The two leaders did have a private tete-a-tete, as they call them, uh, before they got down to the bigger format. There was a suggestion that the British would have liked to have had uh, Lord Frost, David Frost, uh, in the room as well, because the British have long been of the view that they can sort out most of the protocol issues with the Irish government. But the Irish government are very adamant that no, that's a negotiation you have with Brussels. And again, the Taoiseach stressing that uh, Lord Frost and Maros Shevchovic seem to get on rather well and are quite capable of sorting the issues out between them if there's political uh, instruction, clear instruction from the very top. So it's not really David Frost's place to be talking to a head of government. Uh, his interlocutor is Commissioner Shevchovic uh, or the Irish Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, but not at uh, head of government level.
2: Right. Uh, Tony, Uh, On the the protocol, the Taoiseach wasn't really giving much away as to what solution might be arrived at because, as Sean was saying, it's not Ireland's competence to talk about that. He said the EU would work constructively and certainly Ireland is keen to see an amicable outcome. But where is the protocol at, particularly that issue of SPS we heard Sean touch on with the Taoiseach? If David Frost has set his face against this and made it an issue of sovereignty, are we any closer to what we touched on in the previous podcast of maybe a temporary little arrangement.
3: We're not that much closer, Colum, I'd, I'd have to say. And it does feel like this issue is going around in circles. Now, I'm told that, again, there is almost daily contact between officials in the European Commission and the British government at various levels, veterinary, uh, health, food safety. And there is this Agri-Food Forum, which uh, has been set up as well, um, and these issues are normally talked over by officials on the technical side, then ideas get worked up and then you have a joint committee meeting which gives the whole process a bit of a shove politically. There's been talk of a joint committee meeting at the beginning of June, uh, but it, it does seem that both sides are still quite far apart on this issue of an SPS veterinary agreement. Now, as we've discussed before, Such an agreement according to the European Commission would get rid of about 80 or 90% of the checks and controls on food going across the Irish Sea into Northern Ireland. This could be a sort of a sweeping catch-all solution if only the UK would agree to align with EU food safety rules. There was a briefing at the beginning of last week from the European Commission to journalists which suggested, look, this doesn't have to be forever and a day, it could be a temporary alignment and then at a certain point, if the UK is signing a free trade agreement with another third country around the world, and we all know that that means America, then they could revisit the issue. Um, now, I, it, it sounds to me like the Commission is really trying to keep this option on the table. I'm told that the Commission believes that this doesn't have to be a very detailed agreement. It doesn't have to be hundreds of pages long because the UK is already aligned at the moment with EU food safety rules. They've only had Brexit for a few months. They haven't brought in any sweeping changes to the way they run food safety and animal health. There could be language in there about British sovereignty and Britain reserving the right to rescind this temporary alignment with the EU if and when they felt it was necessary. Um so that's this seems to be the direction of thinking for the for the European Commission, and I think the Irish government would certainly be encouraging that approach because you know you do want to have much uh you know a much bigger holistic uh solution to this, but from talking to British officials, they are still adamant that this is absolutely off the cards. Uh, the UK will not dynamically align with EU food safety rules or even align or call it what you will, and that even if it's a temporary alignment, you're still kicking the can down the road. You want something that's going to be permanent. But the solutions that they are proposing, which is based along the lines of risk assessment. So on the one hand, you look at individual food products and say, well, what is the real risk of a bunch of sausages from Lincolnshire or Glasgow or whatever, going to a supermarket in Northern Ireland. What's the existential risk to the Europe to the European single market or consumer health? Um, the, uh, f- officials talk a lot about about uh, pets. And this is obviously a very iconic, sensitive issue for for uh, people in Northern Ireland who might want to bring their pets to to Scotland or England. They're saying, look, you know, Britain is rabies-free. Britain had extremely stringent anti-rabies laws when they were members of the European Union. Those laws haven't changed, so how on earth could a British dog possibly bring rabies into the single market um, if you you had pets moving back and forth across the Irish Sea? Um, So that's the kind of track that the UK is on, and the commission seems to be on a completely different track, which is let's get a a, a holistic alignment agreement, um, which will solve an awful lot of these checks and controls. Th- this is starting to get really quite political because I-, I spoke to one official and said, you know, why, wh- you know, why, if it does solve the problem, why not simply align with the EU for a few years? Gets everybody off, off the hook. Um, and his response was, well, the DUP is not looking for dynamic alignment with the EU's food safety rule rules. In other words, the DUP, according to British thinking, also has a stake in a sovereignty Brexit uh, where the UK is not in any sense still entangled with the EU uh, single market rulebook. Although so it will be to interesting me, to I, see you know,
2: that I, if friction was to be reduced through alignment specifically on the SPS, maybe somebody with knowledge of the sector like Edwin Poots himself, a farmer, albeit a farmer that presumably voted for, for Brexit, it, it might actually reduce the friction and and reduce some of the Political friction as well.
3: Mm. Well, well, you would you would think that, but this is now an issue as to whether or not the DUP would raise their voice and say, "Well, look, let's you know, why not have a straightforward alignment with uh, the EU food safety rulebook, um, and then that means the protocol is much more manageable." Certainly, business groups have said that in at the beginning of the year when they met Maros Shevchevich when he went over. Uh, the Ulster Farmers Union have. Expressed support for an SPS veterinary Agreement. But everything is becoming so political at the moment uh, that, you know, those positions might shift. And I think it was interesting this week that David Frost went to Belfast and he met stakeholders, but he also met four members of the Loyalist Communities Council, including representatives of paramilitary organisations. David Campbell, who was one of that group, gave a very interesting uh, reflection on his meeting to the BBC's Talkback programme this morning. And he said that David Frost did not sort of flinch when the Loyalist Communities Council said that the protocol was a clear breach of the Belfast-Good Friday Agreement, almost suggesting that by his silence, David Frost agreed with them and certainly... David Frost, in his statement after he left Belfast, suggested a, still quite a hard line from the u k. in this saying that the protocol may not be sustainable in its current form. the u k. still reserved the right to explore all options. And by that, they tend to mean that they, you know, could trigger article fifty or Article sixteen themselves, or they could introduce new unilateral measures. so it's it's hard to see at this point where the big breakthrough is going to be. But certainly, People are talking about June being a a critical month because it's right before the marching season. And at the end of June, of course, one of the grace periods from the agreement last December ends. That means from the 1st of July, technically speaking, there will be a ban on chilled meats, sausages, mince pies and so on coming from... Great Britain into Northern Ireland you know how's how's that particular problem going to be addressed by both sides.
2: Sean anything from your side on uh, the protocol and whether or not it's causing any stickiness or even if it's getting into the public attention is it largely a forgotten issue left to Northern Ireland or is it making any political waves?
0: In terms of the general uh, media, certainly in England, no. But in terms of the issue, it it is something that is buried in the Westminster system. Uh, they know it's a problem. Um, right. They are trying to work on it, as as Tony said. But you know, th- there is that fundamental clash between uh, a sovereignist idea and a free trade idea. I think inside the the cabinet, the political cabinet will be split on the issue. The less the civil service, probably less so, uh, on it. Uh, but they are committed to trying to. Uh, have these other trade negotiations. Although, as we saw earlier this week in the uh, revelations about free ports, uh, they may not be uh, uh, entirely successful on that. Where, the, if you may recall, the British government trumpeted the fact that they could introduce free port legislation, although they did have it uh, during their EU membership as well. Uh, now it turns out that 23 of the countries that they've done rollover trade deals with. Um, actually disallow the benefits, the taxation benefits of free ports to be included. Uh, so there would have to be additional tax charges levied on exports. And that includes fairly substantial trade partners like Canada and Singapore. So you know, issues like the veterinary agreement may end up getting forced further and further up the political agenda. Uh, there are issues to do with uh, personnel, truck drivers. There is a great shortage of HGV truck drivers in this country now as a result of Brexit because uh, European Union citizens and even people from further beyond who don't want to go through two sets of EU frontiers when they're delivering loads because it's not economic, uh, that's caused... Uh, and and it's causing an issue that is going to grow uh, in significance here and also the uh, food export situation to Northern Ireland but also to the rest of Europe. We're starting to see fairly big numbers persisting in the drop in trade as each month goes on Uh, Mm. and I think when we start seeing the the, uh, May-June figures, uh, if you continue to see that drop in trade a lot of it is due to the uh, SPS checks, not just at the Northern Ireland border, but also on the French border and the Belgian and the Dutch borders. Uh, And that is going to have an impact on jobs and that political and economic pressure is going to build up. So there might, just might be uh, pressure within the system to go for that fix, particularly if it can be uh, dressed up in these terms of a shorter term fix uh, or a sunset clause or a number of years or anything that seems to um, suggest or... Uh, Even demonstrably prove that Britain is in control of the situation, because that is the all-important thing to be able to say to the people: we're in control of this policy, we can stop it. But for the time being, we're going to go along with this thing, and it—you know—it doesn't amount to much of a big change anyway whatever you have to say yourself. Victory for Britain and Europe used to be the cynical phrase employed by journalists in Brussels when British journalists in Brussels, when I was a journalist in Brussels, uh, anytime a minister was visiting, what's this about? It's about victory for Britain and Europe. Uh, Ha ha ha. And that's how it will be presented to the folks back home. And they will no doubt try and do the same with whatever uh, deal they come up with uh, around this issue of Uh, SPS, veterinary checks these are things that most people just don't think about don't want to think about and in real life probably shouldn't have to think about Uh, unfortunately some people do and that includes us three I'm afraid
2: Right, you know what happens when your neighbouring countries have more truck drivers than you do of course don't you? Go on They adopt a holier than thou attitude
0: Oh oh, no
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sean you were up in Scotland Um, last week We were Yes, you were the, when we last were. we talked to you for we, we when last we talked to you I think you might have been in a, an underpass in the rain. No, that was the week before last. But since then That was the week before then,
0: last. Then we were indoors in Edinburgh and and in fact and in We've that, had a result hotel. since. We've had a result since and uh, yes, the Scottish National Party were the uh, the winners of the election uh, if you can call them winners in a proportional uh, representation system. They were certainly the biggest party. They got the biggest share of the votes. I think 48% of the population voted for the SNP, if it had been the first-past-the-post system, they'd have probably won um, pretty much all the seats up there, but it's proportional, so other parties do get a look in as well. But nevertheless, they, are, they have formed the uh, the next government. It'll be formally voted soon. Uh, and uh, they are pushing full steam ahead for uh, an independence referendum. Well, not full steam ahead, really. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon has said we have to wait and sort out the economy and the pandemic situation first, but there's no doubt... Uh, that she's now on a direct collision course with Boris Johnson uh, and in many ways has resumed the mantle that she has had for the past couple of years which is de facto leader of the opposition in Britain because while the Labour Party had uh, uh, quite a battering in those uh, elections particularly in England, not the case in Wales where they they won and retained power, uh, amazing record there, they've been in power since uh, 1999 I think, Uh, but uh, throughout uh, the rest of of England in particular they have not done well nor in Scotland Uh, and so uh, in terms of real opposition really getting uh, the knife into Boris Johnson this issue of Scottish independence uh, does the trick there's a a really nasty edge in the House of Commons between the Conservatives and the uh, SNP and uh, that's going to continue now for another five years because they have got another lease Uh, on the keys to uh, Holyrood and Butte House and they are going to use it and they're going to use it for their mission to get an independence referendum and ultimately, they believe, get uh, Scotland into the European Union. Which brings us neatly, Tony, to something you've been looking at
3: for a blog you're writing. Yeah, so I mean, just reflecting on on what, sort of the way Sean has presented it there, I mean, absolutely, this is going to be the big thing. So uh, I've been talking to people in, in Scotland but also in Brussels about what independence might look like when, when it might happen. Will will there be a yes vote? And if so, what would Scotland rejoining the EU look like? Interestingly, Scotland has a regional office in Brussels called uh, Scotland House. And if you look up from Schumann, the Schumann roundabout, which is sort of at the heart of the European quarter. You've got the Commission to your right and the European Council to your left. And you look up at Scotland House, which is a kind of a penthouse office at the top. There's a big banner saying Scotland Heart EU. Um, and inside the office, there's the European flag, stands, sits beside the Scottish Saltire flag. And incredibly, the, the even though because of Brexit, the regional office is now reduced to the status as of any regional office from a third country and um, they do an incredible amount of work, uh, presentations, discussions, debates with EU commissioners, with MEPs, with European stakeholders, the kinds of people that are in the Brussels bubble talking about things like climate change, uh, the well-being economy, you know, quite forward-looking progressive stuff. And, you know, while the Scotland House is a neutral outpost of the Scottish Civil Service, the, the SNP manifesto Makes it clear that it will be used as the hub for the diplomatic outreach by the new Scottish government for an independence push and a re-entry into the European Union, um, and there is already quite a bit of meetings going on between SNP figures, MPs, and so on, in embassies in uh, in in London, talking to other European capitals, and they think the idea is not to be as one MP put it, not evangelising for the referendum one way or the other, or or one side or the other, but explaining the context of the referendum and where Scotland is at vis-a-vis European membership in the future. So there's been a lot of discussion and an awful lot of papers written about the referendum in 2014, which, of course, the no side won by 55%. You then had a period of... Consistent opinion polling showing that a majority of people still would vote no in another referendum, but then brexit changed everything 2016 2017 you had Scotland trying to position itself Nicola Sturgeon crying out for some kind of way that Scotland could stay in the single market could could keep its European destiny within reach, but of course Theresa May said no uh, another referendum was turned down and Scotland got dragged out of the EU along with the rest of the UK except of course Northern Ireland um and uh and since then there has been since 2019 there's been a switch to support for yes in a, in a in another referendum um July of uh, October of last year 58% said that they would vote yes in a in a referendum that has fallen back a bit this year. But certainly, if you look at the manifestos of both the Scottish Nationalists and the Greens in Scotland, both of them said they would organise a referendum in the lifetime of the new Parliament. Right. And they got 79 72 out of 149 seats, I think, something like that. But you know, a substantial mandate they would say for a, another referendum. And beyond that, then making the case quietly. The title of their Making the Case project is called Project No Surprises. <laughs> they will project Scotland as a, a grown-up, uh, almost Nordic, social democratic country with, you know, interests in climate change, in, you know, green technology, culture and so on. Free movement of people, the whole idea that... Yeah. Scotland well, And you, treated you could see the attraction Europeans of that from, than, from, than than from
2: the, certain founder members and Nordic members of the European Union that they sign up to values that in some cases the European Union is having difficulties getting other people mm, to adhere yeah, to. Yeah, but
3: they would not be troublemakers, obviously, exactly, when you think of yeah. some of the <laughs> countries that have joined in recent years. The, the their so, big
0: problem, so, though, is, isn't getting other European countries to sign up. It's getting their own voters to sign up. And as Tony was mentioning, those opinion polls... The country is consistently split 50-50, uh, Scotland I'm talking about, on this issue of independence. And that has been reflected, uh, that, that's the long-term trend uh, over the past seven years since that last referendum. And that has been reflected in the outcome in the voting. And as he says, they, they, between the SNP and the Greens, they got 72 out of 129 seats. 65 is the majority mark. So yes, there's a clear independence majority in the House but not in the percentage of votes that they got because of that strange combination of first-past-the-post and uh, proportional representation that they have uh, in uh, the Scottish elections. You do get a bounce as the biggest party, no doubt about that, a payoff in the electoral system but in terms of the votes cast, it's split straight down the middle. It's 50-50. And if they can't convince their own voters, then uh, they're not going to be able to convince anybody else uh, either. Uh, And the one issue that they are now starting to come uh, up against big time is the issue of borders and border control. And Mm. Northern Ireland is providing, would you believe, the Conservative Party, uh, but also the Labour to a lesser extent, but particularly the Conservatives, with a big stick to bash the SNP with and say, look, you have to set up a border here Uh, on the way up to Scotland. And the other week, my cameraman went and got pictures of Hadrian's Wall, uh, which looked fantastic on the the video playback later. But then he spoiled it all by saying, "Of course, you know that's all in England. It's another like hundred kilometres before you get to actually the Scottish border these days." So the Romans were a bit, um, a bit off. In yeah, it was back their, uh, back from the border. It was back word. from the border, but it, it was an excellent. It
3: proves that you can. They de- they de- de- it was an arrangement. <laughs> Let's face it, that's but, it.
2: They de- dramatized the border. They needed to get the checks away from the border. They were they were ahead of their time, <laughs> ahead Adrian, of their time. Adrian, oh, these, had maybe we should it deploy out. the legions. It, to it was to the an early port. technological solution.
3: <laughs> Alternative <laughs> arrangements, <laughs> Latin That's
0: it. That's it. Send in the legions. All right. Then stop. You account. can read it all.
2: You can read it all in Tony Connolly's blog over the weekend if you're listening to this as we record it on Friday. Well, I suppose it's worth looking ahead to the coming week because in the coming week we will have the outcome. I think. Well, sorry, we will certainly, if not the outcome, the conclusion of a court case that was taken by multiple parties, nor uh, mainly unionist parties the traditional unionist voice the UUP and the DUP and they are saying that the protocol the Northern Ireland protocol infringes their constitutional and economic entitlements under the acts of union and the assurances of the Belfast Agreement and undermines their entitlements to be governed only by the laws of those they elect so who knows? We may have a ruling on that. We'll certainly have a conclusion on that case. But why am I, I, think I shoehorning? Made an That's it. Why mention? am I shoehorning the reference so, uh, to this yeah. case in? Apart from the fact but that we're going next there. week. Go for it. Uh, wh- why were we informed today by another journalist colleague? Am I mentioning this?
3: Yeah, our colleague John Campbell from the BBC Northern Ireland. Uh, I assume he was covering the um, the, the hearing and. John Larkin QC, I think, who is representing the complainants, referred to the Brexit Republic podcast and an interview with Rory Montgomery, who which who we had on a few weeks ago, talking about the protocol and the Good Friday Agreement. Um and uh, it, this is a very interesting thing because Rory had had made some comments about the protocol and how it had sort of run up against the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement, if not the letter. Um, And he used the word brutal in his conversation, but he sort of qualified it by saying that, you know, Brexit had caused all of the problems in the other direction uh, when it came to the Good Friday Agreement and an invisible border and north-south cooperation and so on. So I think Rory felt somewhat that his comments had been taken out of context at the time after we did the recording, so I wonder what, how he's thinking about being quoted. Was this, <laughs> in, was this the same QC
0: so in, in the same speech where he, he likened the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol to the Vichy regime in France? Which kind of exactly. This is yes. the question of that, who is that, the Marshal Pétain uh, figure in all of this?
2: Looking ahead in your neck of the woods, Tony, what um, what's going on in the coming week?
3: Well, the in the next couple of weeks, the, the Brexit-wise. There is talk of Mara Shevchevich, the EU's person on the the Joint Committee, going to visit, possibly the Loyalist Communities uh, Council in Northern Ireland to get the the cool face view of loyalism and the Northern Ireland Protocol. From what I gather, that's something that David Frost wants to set up, whether he can or not. I'm not sure, but Mara Shevchevich has been very keen on meeting stakeholders in Northern Ireland. He's he's done that a few times already. Um so we we'll wait to see what happens there. Um the European there will be a European Council on the twenty-fourth and twenty-fifth of May. Um this is a, a sort of an informal European meeting. It'll be in person again and they're going to be talking about a lot of things. Russia, um the Middle East obviously, but Angela Merkel and uh Emmanuel Macron were quite keen on getting the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, onto the agenda. Uh, Charles Michel, the co- the president of the European Council, was saying, well, hang on a second, it's a one-day council. We've got an awful lot of items to deal with. And uh, Angela Merkel said, well, OK, well, let's have a dinner on the Monday night st- as well. Um, <laughs> and uh, her views, even though she wasn't in the, in the meeting uh, in Porto where, where all this was discussed uh, last weekend, she was coming in remotely everyone uh, had to agree that that was a good idea. So it just shows you the immense sway that she still has among heads of government in Europe. Uh, her suggestion was taken up immediately despite Charles michels earlier protestations. Right. So but then the again, trade and cooperation agreement relations with the UK will be discussed at a dinner the night before this summit. So that'll be the 24th of May. So I think it's Monday week. Right.
2: Uh, as a politician who is nicknamed Mutti or Mammy in Germany, when Mammy says come in for your dinner, as Irish people know, we come in for our dinner. Sean, what's what's ahead of you exactly. this coming week?
0: Uh, me personally, hopefully not a lot. I'm trying to lie low after the, the uh, rigours of a Scottish campaign. As for what's going on uh, here in England, well, there'll be lots of uh, Boris Johnson dashing about the country, no doubt. Um, and the real brexit stuff is going to be done in the background. It is going to be down to David Frost and Mara Shevchevich. so we'll have to watch those situations um, But agriculture, being out in the fields around uh, Chequers today, lovely part of the world, uh, beautifully lush landscape, but thinking, look at all these farmers out here who used to get EU agriculture money. How are they going to adapt to the new regime uh, in the UK uh, of uh, a new type of subsidy regime, a new kind of state aid support scheme uh, that was uh, teased out in the farm bill uh, that came through um, over the past year. But uh, how does that money start to drop how will that be phased in? How will the, the CAP type payments be phased out? Uh, a lot of interesting long-term questions there, uh, right. ones
3: that I hope to ponder um, I think
0: after a while. <laughs> right, right, I think right.
3: also David Frost is going to be in front of the European Scrutiny Committee, if I'm not mistaken, on Monday in the House of Commons we should listen in for that to see what he says good man you've been
0: paying more attention to the house of commons uh, diaries than i have i
2: we leave that one to you yeah. so tony you scrutinize away <laughs> there on on monday okay well that's it from me colin monga and rte's deputy foreign
0: editor here in dublin from me sean whelan rte's correspondent in london
3: and for me tony connolly rte's europe editor in brussels thanks for listening